Trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask the academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. I'm Sananda Cray. It's hard to understand how people can still believe that this never happened. It involved 400,000 people. They'd all have to be lying, many of them still alive. Keeping a secret in this country is very hard to to have staged the uh, six missions to the moon or seven or nine, depending on how you want to count, to have, have them all have been fakes is much harder to explain than the possibility that they were real. John Logston has little patience for conspiracy theories about the moon landings. Take my example. I was uh, at Kennedy Space Center on July the 16th, 1969. I got up early in the morning, had press credentials. I went out and watched uh, Armstrong, Aldrin and uh, Collins walk by me on the way to the launch pad. I saw the launch. You know, I, I was there. Have I been lying? For 50 years now, I don't think so. Three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo. You've probably heard that this week marks 50 years since humans first set foot on the moon. And that is a feat that I still can't quite get my head around, given the limitations of technology at the time and the global cooperation required to actually pull it off. The clip you just heard there was from another Conversation podcast, To the Moon and Beyond, led by our colleagues at The Conversation UK and featuring space researchers all around the world reflecting on lunar exploration in the past and where we're headed in the future. You should go and check out To the Moon and Beyond after you've finished listening to Trust Me, of course. And I especially loved episode two, which featured Australia's own space archaeologist, Alice Gorman, talking about why Apollo 11 landing spots could become heritage sites for space tourists to visit in the future. But today, I'm going to hand you over to my colleague Molly Glassy, an editor from The Conversation, who recently sat down with some top astrophysicists to ask the big questions about space. Like, what are the chances that we're alone in the universe, really? What's the next big thing that's happening in space research? The thing that'll blow us away or bring us together the way the moon landings did in 1969? Here's Molly in discussion with astrophysicist John T. Horner, Belinda Nicholson from the University of Southern Queensland, and Katerina Milkovich from Curtin University. Every time I get myself to a really lovely dark sky, I can just sit and stare for hours. That was Dr Belinda Nicholson explaining what, after years of studying astrophysics, still amazes her about space. This is Professor John T. Horner. So I've spent lots of my life relaxing under clear dark skies, just watching for hours, looking for specks of dust burning up harmlessly overhead. And I love to do that. Even now I have a busy life and have limited time, I still do that as often as I can. And I go do talks and then we do stargazing afterwards and we'll just wait for a couple of hours and watch. And this is Dr. Katerina Milkovich. 
I've only moved to Australia about four years ago, and that showed me a complete new sky. I used to know all the constellations, and all of a sudden, I know none. I'm like, oh my god, this is a completely new field for discovery, which is great. But um, I also work a lot with uh, the moon and lunar geophysics, and I, I kind of know moon by heart, you know, where all the craters are, where all the scars are on the moon, and all the shades and all that. But I look up at the moon, and I'm like, this is not the moon I'm used to. It's actually upside down. Hello, Neil and Buzz. I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made from the White House. Now, the moon landing is without a doubt acknowledged as the biggest breakthrough in space exploration. But do you agree? Is there something that has happened in your lifetime that we haven't been talking about? Something that happened in space exploration that you think deserves as much attention as the moon landing? There are loads of these things, and the things that have caught my eye over the years. I grew up really interested in comets, asteroids and meteors. They were my main things when I was a kid. And so when we first sent the first spacecraft to comets, that was a big deal for me. In 1985, the ICE mission flew past a comet called Jacobini's Inner. And then in 86, a flotilla of comet, a flotilla of spacecraft flew past Comet Halley, and that was awesome to get up close and personal with something like that. The first discovery of planets around other stars was a huge one for me because we'd always wondered, are we alone? And we can't answer, are we alone in terms of life? But we didn't even know if the solar system was unique. And there were theories of planet formation that said the solar system should be unique, there should be only one. And the fact that we now know, thanks to the Kepler mission, that planets are everywhere. Every star has planets. So we say planets are ubiquitous. That's a posh word we use to try and sound clever. We know that planets are everywhere, which means that planetary systems are common and the solar system isn't unique. It's special because it's our home, but it's probably not special in any other way. And I think that's really cool. Kat, what about you? What do you think really rivals the moon landing? There's lots of things that's actually been happening since the Apollo era. Um, obviously, there was, I think now we're going through a renaissance of space exploration. And, and I'm so privileged to be living in this this time and age and be working in this sector that I can I can actually see it evolve. There's so many things I can I would definitely single out asteroid sample return missions because it's one thing to send a piece of kit to a planetary body that's millions of miles away, but it's a completely another endeavor to actually bring a sample back. So I think what's now happening with the Zyrus Rex and Hayabusa 2 missions with NASA and JAXA trying to, uh, they actually successfully picked up samples from these asteroids where they landed on and then needed to give, you know, bring it back to Earth. So that is an amazing technological endeavor. And and speaking of exoplanets, what John too was saying is that exoplanets were one of the reasons why I got so interested in astronomy. So I, I, I have a lot of love for them because they, they opened my eyes that we are not alone in the universe because when we started discovering exoplanets, you're just realizing that we're a teeny bit of space in a, in a space of things. And they couldn't think of a better word, right? Because it's so mesmerizing. And then I think having exoplanets and knowing about them is definitely uh, paving the future for, for exploration. I think it's something that a lot of people have heard about, and I'm sort of pulling the definition of space exploration out a little bit. Um, but the thing that sticks out in my mind was the detection of gravitational waves. 
I mean, suddenly we have this whole other way of being able to view our universe. It's really remarkable. And again, going back to, you know, the feat of human achievement of being able to uh, do something for the first time, I think the amount of human effort that went into that first gravitational wave detection really can't be understated. Like we're talking decades and decades and decades and generations of scientists to get to that point of that first detection. And now we're seeing lots of them um, because, yeah, the first one's always the hardest to find and now they're doing upgrades even more to the to the instrument that detects them and there's more in the future. And so who knows what we're going to be able to discover with this entirely new way of being able to observe and explore our universe. What do you think the next moon landing will be? Will it be having people on Mars, making contact with alien life, or something even more incredible? I think we'll most likely land people on Mars. I think that's definitely something that people get excited about. As for whether or not we would ever talk to any other life forms, I think that's highly unlikely. I think it'd be cool to one day know if they were out there. We might be able to detect if they're out there, other intelligent life, but... I think the the chances of us, with the caveat of given our current understanding of physics and the way the world works, I don't think it's likely that we'll actually be able to talk to them because space is just too big. But in terms of another moon landing-like feeling event, being able to send people to another planet, I reckon, but even maybe even to another exoplanet, let's let's try and find another solar system and get ourselves there. That'd be cool. What about you, Jonty? What do you think the next moon landing is going to be? I think going back to the moon, because everybody these days loves a sequel. You know, you don't do new content, you do a reboot. So we'll reboot the moon mission with Project Artemis, which is clearly not funded well enough to work, but we can help. Um, we could have people going to the moon. We could have people going to Mars, which is really cool. <clears throat> but I do have... The life elsewhere thing, I think, I'd agree with Belinda that it's very unlikely we'll be communicating with aliens. But I think if we do find intelligent life, which is the hardest thing to find, it's very unlikely we'll do it. But if we do, I think we'll find silicon life before we find carbon life. This is a really fun little topic to get into. We're sending all these spacecraft out and we're sending them further and further away. So they have to be autonomous to some degree. If you're 14 hours communication time from the Earth, you can't send a message back saying, I'm about to drive over a cliff, what should I do? Because the time you get the answer, you've already fallen off the cliff. So we're getting better at making these autonomous spacecraft that do their own thing, need as little instruction as possible. And people are working really hard to develop artificial intelligence. And when we start looking at sending spacecraft beyond the solar system, We'll do that before we send people because it's a lot cheaper. We can send things quicker. They can do a lot of the things more safely than we can do with people. So we'll send spacecraft out. But if you're going to the nearest stars, you can't radio back to home for instructions because it will take years for the instructions to get there. So you've got to be able to totally think for yourself. And I think what that means is that we as a species will be sending out life, fully self-aware, fully interactive spacecraft, before we send people out. And if other intelligent aliens were to do the same thing, we'd encounter their artifacts, their silicon-based life, before we ever met them in person, which leads to lots of interesting questions about philosophy and religion and belief. Because silicon-based life like that would have a creator. It would know for certain that it had a genesis, that somebody made it. And there's a lot of 
interesting things you could go into which are way beyond the topic of simple questions of how do you deal with that? How would we interact when we get to the level of intelligence in a silicon spacecraft? Can it negotiate for better pay? Can it ask for healthcare before it does its observations? There's a lot of cool stuff to come there. So down the line, I think that would be a real threshold moment as well. The, the moment we have a conversation with one of our own spacecraft and don't know how it'll answer. Look, the moon landings were a massive uh, human achievement. And the 50 years that we had after Apollo, during that time, we had a lot of samples that were brought back from the moon that benefited planetary and, and scientific community in studying the origins of the moon and the earth. So scientifically, it was it was a massive legacy and, and um, um, it was a kickoff for planetary science. For human race, it was it was a milestone in in exploring space and showing the whole world that we can do this. What I think would be the next moon landing equivalent is is probably the next next step in 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 human evolution, and that is starting to mine space resources and getting space resources from from outside Earth, obviously. So it doesn't have to be asteroid mining, which is a buzzword nowadays. It can be getting resources from the moon. So we could have uh, a lunar base with uh, that's inhabited or in, or uninhabited that would be able to bring some of the lunar resources back to Earth. Um, having space resources on Earth and used on Earth would massively change the course of history. And, and then it probably would change human evolution and, and our own lives more significantly than lunar landings have. So Mars and Earth are often called the two sisters, but do we know just how similar they are? This is one of the questions that we might be able to answer with insight. Now, I'm just going to jump in here very quickly to remind everyone that Dr Katerina Milkovic is actually leading Australia's only team working on NASA's InSight mission. Through InSight, we're hoping to learn more about the structure of interiors. So how thick is the crust? What's the structure of the crust? Um, how, how big is the core? And what's the state of the core? Is it molten? Is it, is it liquid? Or is it solid? Um, those are the key questions Then we can then compare it to Earth. And Mars is, is a smaller, smaller planet than Earth, uh, yet bigger than our moon. So we can kind of put it to sit somewhere between the Earth and the Moon, which wouldn't be entirely true because uh, the Moon is is, is a Moon. Uh, but imagine it th- this way. So Earth is a dynamic planet with tectonic activity and, and um, other geologic processes. But on the other hand, Moon is quite inactive. And Mars is expected to sit somewhere between, hopefully more towards the Earth than the Moon. But that's one of the th- aspects that inside that aims to answer by the end of the mission. And once we have those insights, once we know a bit more about the makeup of Mars, what does that mean for, you know, living on Mars or possibly having a colony on Mars? That is a very good question. It's kind of hard to to grasp the actual consequences because we haven't discovered the interior of Mars properly yet, but it's, it's a little hard for me to answer right away. But I would imagine that we need to know what's the making what's making the planet that we want to send humans to. So Mars used to have a magnetic field; it does not have it anymore. We don't know why. No, we don't. We don't know yet. We're really working to try and answer that question. 
we don't really know what's the subsurf, immediate subsurface structure, but if we were to send a colony to Mars or send a human base to Mars, we'd really want to know, um, can we mine something there? Can we make a sustainable living? And that for that case, we really do want to know what's underneath the surface. So those are kind of the first questions that come to mind, and they're obviously different to our Earth, so we need to really understand what's underneath to be able to say, well, you know, humans could live out of blah, blah, but not because of blah, blah. And blah, blah, it's still an X in this equation. With relation to that, because we've all mentioned going off Earth, is the challenge in actually having a sustainable society off Earth. We have this great talk, I've mentioned this on a couple of the radio interviews, a couple of years ago at one of the space research conferences, we had a talk from a doctor who gave a health trigger warning at the start saying, if you're squeamish, I know you don't get talks like this normally, please feel free to leave beforehand. And if you start feeling a bit sickly, feel free to leave during, I won't be offended. And he talked about pregnancy. From the point of view of even the slightest change from normal terrestrial conditions that we're used to here into one that we're used to here in Australia, and women really struggle to carry pregnancies to term, they really struggle to get pregnant. And that's true even in the high mountains in South America. So the Spanish conquerors struggled to colonise the last little bits of the Andes because they could go and live there, but they didn't have any children. That was too different to their normal conditions. And the women who live there in the high Andean tribes have had generations to adapt. And he was saying, if we can't get it right at 4,000 metres, how are we going to cope at one-third gravity on Mars? How are we going to cope on the Moon or in space? There's no research... What that led to is that people on the Mars One mission, this idea that we'd go colonise Mars and we'd send two men and two women, they had to agree to be sterilised before they'd go on the mission because it's so dangerous. They probably wouldn't be able to have children anyway, but it would be so dangerous that they wouldn't do it. And so the idea is that the moon colony, people would go there and come back to Earth potentially. It's somewhere you go to work, a bit like fly-in, fly-out miners. Mars Colony would probably be a retirement home. People would go there after they've had their kids to live out their final years in a lower gravity environment. And to go from that to being able to have a fully functional colony with young people being born and growing up on Mars is a really big leap. And that would probably take us a long time to work out and would probably require us to modify ourselves, you know, genetic modification to solve the problems or develop ways around them. You know, and I'm sure most of the women listening wouldn't want to spend nine months in a centrifuge to ensure that they had one G of gravity while they were pregnant, you know. So there's hurdles there that until you talk to people outside your field, until you talk to people with different skills and different knowledge, you just don't know, you don't imagine. And that's one of the great things about science is there are always questions we don't know the answer to. And there are always questions we can't answer without talking to someone who does something totally different. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Sananda Cray. Special thanks to my colleague, Molly Glassie, for bringing us today's episode. And if you're interested in To the Moon and Beyond, that podcast I mentioned at the very beginning, it's available on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you're listening now. Our theme beats at Trust Me are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and we've used music in this episode from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of credits and sign up for The Conversation's daily newsletter on our website at theconversation.com. Chat to you next time.